Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Within minutes of some of the brutalities screened, there were journalists who started crying and said they wanted to be let out. These sentiments online have been around for a while in China. They have come out more to the forefront ever since the 7th of October. But this anti-Semitism is there. When this young man hears calls for revenge, he says that this is not what his parents would have wanted. His parents were working towards building peace. I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines, Israel-Gaza. Terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. Like, every place I go, I go run away, and I just find bombs, and I find dead people. And, like, maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs> people telling me that, you know, mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. It's Friday, the 27th of October. In the second episode of Battle Lines, I speak to defence editor Danny Sheridan and Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilieva about their reporting on the ground in Israel and the West Bank. Danny and Natalia speak about the harrowing experience of watching a screening of Hamas murders, speaking to locals in the West Bank where tension with Israel and clashes with settlers is increasing, and attending a Shabbat dinner in Tel Aviv with empty chairs for those kidnapped into Gaza. Also on this episode, senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan reports on a wave of anti-Semitism in China, and Brussels editor Joe Barnes explains some of the lessons the IDF are taking from the war in Ukraine. This episode of Battle Lines contains descriptions of extreme violence, murder and anti-Semitism. We would not advise listening to this episode at home or in your car with children present. I started by asking Natalia, who's on the ground in Jerusalem, to round up some of the most important stories of the past week. So this is almost three weeks since the unprecedented raid by Hamas into southern Israel. And all of this time, pretty much since day two, really, we've been expecting a ground invasion because this is something that the Israeli government has been heavily hinting at. There are increasing signs that it could be happening in the coming days. Just last night, the Israeli military reported that they launched a targeted raid, as they called it, on Gaza. There was a number of tanks and uh, infantry vehicles that entered Gaza for a short operation. We saw some videos that showed that there were also diggers and something which looked like construction equipment, which was, as you can see in the video, was trying to demolish what looks like a defense line built by Hamas on the other side of the border. Now, those tanks and infantry came and went, but Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did say that we are, quote, preparing for a ground 
offensive. Obviously, time is running out. Troops have been at the border for a very long time. We first started seeing a massive number of troops and tanks and armored vehicles arriving at the border in the initial days after the attack, I would say like 15, 17 days ago. You cannot keep those troops in the field for that long. Obviously, everyone is waiting to see if there's going to be any more hostage released. Just earlier this week, Hamas released two elderly women. 24 hours ago, there were reports on Israeli media suggesting that a further 50 Israeli hostages could be released. It hasn't happened yet. From what we heard, the United States has been urging Israel to try and sit it out to wait with the ground offensive before they, they are absolutely sure that None of the hostages can be released in any organized manner. And obviously in, in, in Gaza, uh, Israeli bombings and airstrikes of Gaza have not abated. They've been happening nonstop. And I think it was the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees that warned that fuel supplies in Gaza are expected to run out today. And Natalia, what's life like for you in Israel now? Are there still regular air raid sirens? Is the Hamas bombardment of Israel continuing? Definitely things are not as jittery as they were three weeks ago. Sirens would go on and off. In Jerusalem, they are increasingly rare. I was out reporting yesterday in northern and central Israel, and we were just sitting outside, actually, at the Shiva, at the Jewish mourning ceremony for this person on a rooftop at a high-rise building in the suburb of Tel Aviv, and we heard some very loud thuds and there were no air raid, raid sirens and it turned out that there was an air raid alert nearby it was not in that neighborhood per se and apparently it was air defense at work but overall attacks from hamas rocket attacks are definitely much much rarer these days you mentioned there the delayed ground invasion of gaza you've been mm. writing for the telegraph about a potential sort of rift between netanyahu and the military about the launching of this offensive could you take us inside that why do you think there may be a rift there yeah i think that's a story that we've been witnessing for the past few days even for a week increasingly with every day when you would get a morning briefing from the israeli military they would speak about their preparedness for the war every time they would emphasize that they are ready to go in at any moment. And definitely there was some anxiety there. And earlier this week, we started hearing from Israeli sources, from Israeli media, that Israel's defense minister and the military in general are pushing for a ground evasion to start as soon as possible, while Prime Minister Netanyahu has been trying to sit it out and see if he can get any progress on hostages in, in line with advice that he has received from Joe Biden. Also, another interesting detail, obviously, we have a war cabinet in Israel right now, and Netanyahu has different advisors. So apparently, there are two main sort of unpaid advisor generals who have been offering their intelligence to him. And one of them, his name is uh, Yitzhak Brik, it's an elderly retired general who is hailed as a hero of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and he made quite an interesting public intervention a couple of days ago when he gave a rare interview to a radio station saying that maybe Israel shouldn't be going ahead with any ground invasion at all. And he warned of very potentially very high casualties. He warned about fortifications and line of defenses that Hamas would have already built in place. So that was that's quite an interesting, as basically the first time someone as senior and well-respected was out there on the public stage trying to tell Israelis that maybe it's not going to solve the problem that we're looking to solve. 
Thank you very much, Natalia. Sophia Yan, can I come to you? What have you made of some of the diplomatic and political movement in the region? Could we maybe start in Turkey? Uh, Turkish President Erdogan said on Wednesday that he was cancelling plans to visit Israel because of its inhumane war, that's his words, inhumane, against the Hamas militants in Gaza. Could you talk to us about what he said and the impacts of this for the war? How did those remarks go down in Turkey? This week, Erdogan did give his strongest comments yet on the Israel-Gaza conflict. He said, quote, Hamas is not a terrorist organization. It is a liberation group. Mujahideen waging a battle to protect its lands and people. Mujahideen, an Arabic word to refer to those who fight for their faith. Now, Turkey does not consider Hamas a terrorist organization. Basically, Erdogan is underlining his government's stance on this situation. They even host members of Hamas here on his territory. Many of The leaders of Hamas were actually in Turkey for meetings when the attack took place in Israel on October 7th. That's the thinking around this. But of course, this means that Ankara is the odd man out when you think about NATO. Turkey is a member of NATO. Many NATO allies, though, do consider Hamas a terrorist organization. So this is a place where Turkey splits. And it's interesting because Turkey, like many other countries, did condemn the civilian deaths caused by the attacks on the 7th of October in southern Israel. But They've also really over the years taken a lot of time to show that they are behind the Palestinians. Now, when it comes to Turkey and Israel, this has come just as Turkey was trying to mend its rocky relationship with Israel. As you said, David Erdogan was even due to visit Israel, but that trip has been canceled. Of course, his comments about Hamas not being a terrorist organization maybe aren't exactly ones that will make him very welcome in Israel at this point. That's not a surprise. Israeli officials already very upset with what he had to say this week. So this is where things are when it comes to Turkey. Erdogan has also said other things, you know, things like calling for an immediate ceasefire, urging Israeli forces to act with restraint in their response, unfettered transport of humanitarian aid into Gaza for Muslim countries to coordinate to stop the violence. This is a message, something that many countries have also said, something that many countries can get behind. But again, the long-term picture of this and what we've seen in the 20 years that Erdogan has been in power here is that really they are on side with the Palestinians. Turkey does not deny Israel's right to exist, but they have always backed a two-state solution. And over the years, it seems that Turkey is becoming a little bit more critical. Some would say even extremely critical of Israel. In this latest conflict, Erdogan's even called it Israel's bombardment of Gaza. He's called it, quote, an intentional massacre. So you can see that these comments are, to some, quite sharp. And it really just underlines this very special position that Turkey is in, literally straddling Asia, Europe, kind of a a foot in the West in terms of security, military, other economic affairs, but politically maybe on the other side. So it's an interesting time to be here in Turkey, absolutely. One point to make is that the stock market's kind of all over the place here in Istanbul. And this is important because the Turkish economy is not doing very well. So what's important to Erdogan here politically? He's saying these things, maybe it's not so great for the economy. I mean, this is a a real battle for him going forward, how he balances his foreign policy versus his domestic policy, where things go with the domestic economy. What is he going to prioritize? It's a big question mark at the end of that sentence. Thank you very much for that, Sophia. We'll come back to you later. Natalia Vasilieva, we're going to speak to Danny Sheridan later, who I know has been traveling all over Israel for reporting, but you've also been on the road quite a bit. You went to the West Bank recently for The Telegraph. Where did you go and what did you see? Yeah, it's quite ironic that the West Bank was the most volatile place in Israel until recently. And with the terrific violence on on both sides of the Gaza border, what's happening there has been completely overshadowed by the events in Gaza. 
for many months, we have been witnessing escalating violence in the West Bank. So I decided to go there, take the temperature to see what it's like. While this region remains very much ignored, in the middle of the crisis we have in Gaza. And I can't even keep up with the figures because they keep updating all the time. So the United Nations has been keeping a tally on casualties in Palestine, on the number of Palestinians who would be killed in the West Bank in clashes with settlers or who would be like gunned down by Israeli defense forces. And so far, the latest number I've seen was 90 people have been killed since October 7th alone, which already makes it the deadliest month in the West Bank, at least since 2005. Again, it doesn't generate the same dramatic headlines as you have with kibbutzes in Israel or with Gaza, but the level of violence is escalating. And basically, this is one of the hotspots in Israel that everyone, I think, should be looking at for the prospect of, you know, a second front or a third front for Israel, because obviously the Israeli government has been tightening the screws on West Bank for a long time since the Hamas attack. Residents of the West Bank also ended up under some sort of a blockade. If you live in the West Bank, you are not able to go to Israel anymore unless you have an Israeli passport, which they, those people don't, or unless you have an East Jerusalem residence. We went there to see one protest because obviously people who live in the West Bank, they all have relatives in Gaza or they would have ancestors from there. They very much associate themselves with what's happening there. And a lot of them feel that what people in Gaza are going through, living under constant Israeli airstrikes, this is something that might happen to them. And we, we, we did see protests and we saw one violent protest on the night of uh, an explosion at this major hospital in, in Gaza, but we haven't seen the level of violent protest that would, would call it intifada, which is the Arabic word for appraisal, which would mean like a continuous appraisal of Palestinian people in the West Bank against Israel. But definitely this is not something to overlook. Everywhere you go, you would meet with people who became victims of the violence. We just sat down with a family whose family members were killed while they were going to a funeral. They were killed by settlers and apparently the military were standing by and they didn't provide any protection for them. So this is a story where violence has been simmering for, for a long time and it's quite possible that the West Bank might blow up before too long. Thanks, Natalia. Sophia, last week you spoke a little bit about the initial reactions to this conflict from China. You've written about an explosion of anti-Semitism that you've seen sweep over China. What do you mean by this? What what does anti-Semitism in China look like and where does it come from? A lot of this is online. These are Chinese influencers, pundits, people with a million or so followers on the internet. This is, to be very clear, this is not coming from the sort of the general public, but this is coming from people who have some sort of sway over public opinion. And the thing is, when it comes to China, especially when it comes to the internet and any sort of news and information, is that the government, of course, has very tight censorship. So the fact that this is allowed to exist, okay, so think like the top talk show hosts in the UK, you know, that that equivalent in China, that these people are saying these kinds of things. They're saying things like Hamas is being too soft, that uh, Israel is a lackey of colonialism, that Israelis should be captured. I mean, these are just some examples of comments that are coming from these Chinese influencers since the war broke out. And it's a little bit every day, actually, on, on this topic. Even some comments likening Israel to the Nazis, just really some awful things things that are so terrible that it's hard to repeat it, honestly. 
this is coming from this backdrop of what the government is willing to allow. Again, with the censorship, there are certain narratives that the ruling Chinese Communist Party is willing to promote online. So this is what the country of 1.4 billion people are now being exposed to. Of course, the general public, you cannot generalize everything that they're thinking about this conflict. But what's important to remember is that what is being given and broadcast within China about what's happening with Israel and Gaza is very much selective. So, so far, China has refused to condemn Hamas for its attack. It's really upset Israel. It's really risking Beijing's relationship with the country. And China for so long has said that it stands behind a two-state solution. And like Turkey, this is a long-standing position. China does see Israel as a colonialist. And if you pull back even further, China's looking at this in the lens of uh, its broader rivalry with the U.S. Israel being an ally of the U.S. thus is on the other side. It's not on the side of China. What's very interesting about this whole situation, I think, is that China has links to Iran. This is very similar to the Russia-Ukraine situation. China also has links to Russia. Enough influence with these two countries, with Iran and Russia, that perhaps Beijing could actually step in and have some sort of material impact on the outcome for a ceasefire, for peace, for whatever it might be that could mean a movement toward resolution whatever that looks like for this moment. Now, it doesn't look like Beijing wants to expend its diplomatic capital. They keep saying that they're on the side of peace. They've also said we stand for ceasefire, this kind of stuff, when it comes to both these conflicts, Israel-Gaza and Russia-Ukraine. But really, it doesn't seem like China's willing to do the tough work. And so it just goes back to all of this sort of mess that you see online trying to push what China thinks about all of this, which is, again, that Israel is a bad guy. Is this sort of, this online anti-Semitism that you talk about sort of sweeping across the Chinese internet? I, I had no idea this was happening until your report, Sophia, but is this actually having any impact on the diplomatic relations between China and Israel? Or is it at the moment very much just an internal Chinese thing? This is an interesting one because China also has relations with Israel. They have had diplomatic relations with Israel. And of course, China says that we want to be friends with everybody. There are a couple of people in Israel who specialize in China-Israel relations who have started to take note of this. And it's actually worth noting that these sentiments online have been around for a while in China. They have come out more to the forefront ever since the 7th of October. But this idea, this this anti-Semitism is there. A lot of Chinese people would say things like, oh, well, the Jews are so powerful. They're the businessmen, they're the lawyers, they're the doctors. You know, like there's a sense of admiration to a certain extent. But then if you're looking at sort of the official message that comes from the government and what the government, again, allows influencers and pundits to say, and there is this narrative that's being amplified through state media that the U.S., much of the world is, quote, controlled by Jewish people. And this itself is bringing chaos to the world. A lot of the nationalist commentators that are popular in China, some of the most famous ones that people follow, have been saying these sort of anti-Semitic comments for quite some time. I'll read you one line here from a popular Chinese pundit. This is a quote. U.S. colonization and massacre of the Native Americans and the Israeli massacre and colonization of Palestine are the same. Big brother and little brother. Both built their country by trampling on the corpses of others. So this is a a sentiment that has been in the background for some time, and it does come up every so often. I mean, the Chinese government now, the the Communist Party, actually often says, well, we're not anti-Jew, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. You know, we're not any of that at all. They try to talk about this history often from quite a while ago when China actually was welcoming Jews escaping the Holocaust. They were bringing them into Shanghai. At the time, Shanghai was allowing visa-free entry. But 
what the Communist Party doesn't say when they bring this up about the history is that actually at the time, Shanghai was controlled by a different government. It was the nationalist government in China. They had taken over after the fall of China's last imperial dynasty. And foreign powers were also there too, including the UK, the US, and France. It was a very different time. So there's a very checkered, complicated history when it comes to how China looks at the Jews and Israel. Thank you very much, Sophia, for talking us through that. Natalia, can I ask you, just sort of related to this, obviously, Sophia's just given us a bit of a rundown of the sort of currents of thought internally in China. But you're in Israel, you're in Jerusalem. And when you talk to people, what's their impression of support or enmity from the outside world? Who do they see as their friends? And what do they think of what their allies are doing? I think I should say that those perceptions are changing and they changed a lot in the past 10 days or so. I remember bumping into people and during the first week, just random people, and I would tell them, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a journalist, I work here, and I recently went to the site of Mistis Massacre in the kibbutz, for example. And a lot of them would tell me how grateful they were, that they were happy that journalists were there, that they were documenting. And they all said that they felt that Israel has been ignored by international media, that, as they put it, too much sympathy has been traditionally given for Palestinians, and they were not receiving enough sympathy. So finally, they felt when they saw international support, especially from the West, they felt that finally the international community was standing on their side. As uh, bombings of Gaza started to get worse, we, we've been seeing a shift in public opinion globally and in the West specifically. I'm getting a sense that the Israelis feel disappointed that as they see it, the tragedy of October 7th is being overlooked and is kind of being overshadowed by the massive loss of life in Gaza. I mean, it's a very thorny subject because it's a very slippery path trying to compare the casualty of one side or another and say, well, our casualties are more dramatic or they, they are more numerous. But so far, Israelis do feel that the West on their side. And, you know, if you go back to Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Turkish president, despite a recent rapprochement between Israel and, and Turkey, Israelis have, have always been quite cautious about Turkey. I mean, they love holiday making there. You can see lots of tourists uh, if you're in Istanbul or on the Turkish Mediterranean coast. But it's not like they expected a lot of support. So I guess Erdogan's statement about about Hamas being a liberation organization didn't come as much of a surprise for anyone here. Just to finish our time together then, Natalia, you also wanted to speak about some of your reporting. You've been speaking to some of the people who lost relatives in the 7th of October attacks, some of whom have been kidnapped by Hamas and taken into Gaza, but they were peace activists. What did they tell you? Yeah, I think this is a story that has been really overlooked because of the violence we've seen has been so overwhelming. And obviously, the stories that we were trying to tell in the initial days was exactly what happened. But I feel that no one really took the time to look at the communities that were mostly affected. So those kibbutzim, which basically stood just on the other side of the Gaza fence, a lot of them have a very strong socialist tradition. A lot of them traditionally attracted leftist activists and leftist Israelis who ended up raising their families there. There's a number of peace activists who've been taken hostages, including Vivian Silver. We still don't know where she is. It's expected that she has been kidnapped into Israel. And at the same time, while the Israeli government is publicly calling for revenge and using 
inflammatory language talking about, quote, wiping out Gaza. There are families of people who were killed who say that they don't want this kind of revenge in their name, that their parents or their children who have been active in the peace movement, they wouldn't want other people, they wouldn't want Palestinians in Gaza to die in their name. For example, I met this very young man in his early 20s who lost both of his parents in the attack. They were killed in the kibbutz of Beri, which became the byword for Hamas atrocities. And uh, his parents were quite active in the movement. They had friends on the other side of the fence. They would help out Palestinians from Gaza to get medical treatment. They would drive kids from Gaza to Israeli hospitals. And when this young man hears calls for revenge, he says that this is not what his parents would have wanted. His parents were working towards building peace. And it's quite stunning to hear that, especially from people who went through hell and who lost their dearest family members in, in that horrible attack. Thank you very much, Natalia Vasilieva. Sophia, any final updates or thoughts from you? I just want to underline the issue of releasing hostages. It's a very interesting development that Hamas is letting even a, a couple of people go whether it's two or 50, whatever the number might be in the coming days, it's very interesting to note. Uh, having Israeli civilians as hostages is a deterrent to the Israeli military. So the fact that Hamas is doing this, it does seem like this is some sort of turning point. It's unclear what it means, but it's something that I think is really worth keeping an eye on. Thank you, Sophia. Natalia Vasilieva, what will you be looking at over the next few days? Well, we're still waiting for a ground invasion. This is something the Israeli government has been telling us is imminent. Obviously, the time is running out. So I would say the next seven days is going to be crucial to see if Israel is going to go ahead and do it. Or it might take a 180 and heed an increasing number of voices, including from inside Israel and from international community like Emmanuel Macron, who publicly said that he doesn't think that a ground operation would solve the Hamas issue. Well, thank you very much, Natalia and Sophia, for your time. On Monday, the Israel Defence Forces invited journalists to a screening of footage gathered from the massacres perpetuated by Hamas on October the 7th. The Telegraph's defence editor, Danielle Sheridan, was in the room. I asked her about the screening and what she saw. To repeat, this interview contains graphic descriptions of extreme violence and cruelty. Hi, David. Well, firstly, the Israeli government put out a statement the night before the screening saying, if journalists can stomach it, they can come along to a screening where we will show for the first time raw, unseen footage of the Hamas massacre that took place on October 7th. It was a compilation of footage recorded on GoPros and body-worn cameras the terrorists had, CCTV in homes, dash cam footage, stuff recorded on victims' mobile phones. And it lasted for 43 minutes. And when they say it was raw, I mean it really was. I was nervous about going. I don't like violence, ironically, because I write a lot about it. And knowing myself as I do, I was quite nervous about going. And it was really harrowing within minutes of some of the brutalities screened. There were journalists who started crying and said they wanted to be let out. And when I went, my colleagues said, are you sure you're going to be okay going? Because once you see these things, you can't unsee them. 
and I really will remember these things forever the scene that got me most and I wrote about this in my in my dispatch was some CCTV footage recorded inside a family home it's obviously early in the morning and this father is seen legging it through his kitchen with his two young children and they're both boys they can't be older than 12 they're all in their underpants because they've obviously been in bed and suddenly woken up to this siren blasting and the littlest one is really disorientated and doesn't know what to do and what's happening and the dad has to try and pick him up and run out of the kitchen with him towards the safe room which is located in their garden and you see him shove his kids down the stairs into the safe house and just as he goes to shut the door, he doesn't manage it. And then you just see a grenade lob down there. And um, the father's body ricochets back up the stairs. And then moments later, you see the two boys walking back up, covered in blood. There's dust and grit all over them. And they're both hysterical. And it is so sad because as the viewer in that moment, you were thinking, no, 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 don't go down there. And then just the worst thing happens, which you, you don't want to see. And then when the boys came up, I just, I myself, and I wrote about it, I did, I, I did have tears in my eyes because how can you not watching that? And you're just like, oh, what the hell is going to happen to these children? Like it's, you're just watching like misery unfold. And then the two little boys go back into the kitchen and they're both hysterical. And the older brother is trying to comfort his his younger brother saying, this isn't a prank. I'm not joking. Dad's dead. And the little one goes, I know. And then this terrorist comes into the kitchen. And again, you're like, no, God, please leave them alone. And then um, he starts raiding their fridge and he pulls out one bottle and asks if it's water and then pulls out a bottle of Coca-Cola and starts swigging from it. And the little boy is just crying. He's screaming, I want my mom. It's so awful to see. And then he says, the terrorist walks back out. We have no idea the fate of these two children, by the way. When we asked, we were told that it wouldn't be discussed. I really hope that they made out alive but I don't know and um then the the little boy starts saying to his brother he can't see out of one of his eyes then the other boy has a big cut on his shoulder and you see the brother trying to pour some water on it and then they're both crying again hysterical and one of them says I think we're going to die so that was just just awful to watch and then some other really harrowing moments were seeing a man being bludgeoned to death uh, a terrorist recorded on his phone he just um, has a garden hoe and he just repeatedly slams it into this man's chest and there is so much blood in all of these videos what would have been once clean hallways and kitchen floors of a, a home are covered in blood almost to the point that it looks like someone's had a can of red paint and dropped it on the floor you see the bodies of babies in bloodied baby grows they've been killed human remains burnt to a crisp i really hope that viewers listening to this are, are aware that it, this is going to be really horrible to hear because you know 
I did try and write it as sensitively as possible in my article, but it really was horrific. And also what was really terrifying was seeing how the terrorists just stalked the streets using their guns to fire through windscreens and killing the passengers. And you just see the car just roll to a stop. And then a kind of modus operandi of the terrorists was to, after they killed those behind cars, they would drag their bodies out, discard them on the street and use the vehicles to drive around to hunt more Israelis to kill. And there were images of, you know, young women in like jeans and a black tank top, just face down in the road, having been killed, pool of blood by their heads. You know, it was just, it was just really horrific. And I think that there's been a lot of naysaying, not just in the media, but on online, people saying, did it really happen? Disputing what took place that day. And so that's why I do believe it was important for someone like me, a member of the press, to go and sit through that screening and report these atrocities because someone has to. And it really did happen. So we need to be reporting the truth on that. And as upsetting as it is for myself and other members of the media who watched it, it was 43 minutes. It wasn't hours and hours of agony that people suffered and will go on to suffer forever because of what they were subjected to. So it was incredibly gruesome. It was stomach churning. And I'm not surprised people got up and left because when those those little boys were shown on the screen, I just had my notepad in one hand and I couldn't look away. I didn't want to be looking, but I had to. And I had to just keep on writing as many notes as possible in my book because if we weren't allowed to take any recording. So I would have to have everything written down. And I was just using my other hand to like wipe my face because I was just, my eyes are just streaming because it is horrible. Like how can you possibly sit and watch that? I feel for the people that have to go through that every single day as part of their jobs as they try and make sense of these crimes. But anyway, like I said, it was 43 minutes of uncomfortable, upsetting viewing, but that's nothing compared to what anyone else has been put through. What happened at the end of the screening? How did it finish? What did you do? What did the other journalists do when you when you left the room? So throughout the screening, I said people left crying and then there were just audible communal gasps. Everyone seemed to find the same things, which was constant, shocking throughout. And then we were let out for 15 minutes before coming back in for a press conference. There were people sobbing, inconsolable, it really did impact people. It's really hot in the Middle East right now. And so everyone's kind of milling around outside in the bright sunshine and there were palm trees and cypress trees. And ordinarily, wouldn't that be a lovely setting to be in, except that you've just watched footage of people being murdered, over a thousand people being murdered in that footage. So the mood was really somber and then we went back inside and we had a press conference and the representatives from the Israeli Defence Forces were speaking to the decision to air it. They said they undenied for a long time. Is this too awful to put into the public? But it's got to the point where we believe, as in the Israeli army, believe we are experiencing a Holocaust-like 
denial of what took place. And they said that that was the justification. And then they said that they had documentation that suggested Iran had been involved in the massacre, had had an involvement. But when asked, well, can we see this documentation? They wouldn't. And they also said that there was even worse footage that they weren't prepared to show. So take from that what you will. And, you know, there's obviously a wider argument here, which is we see what they did to your people. Is it right to keep bombarding Gaza, which is now resulting in even more people being killed? Where is a line going to be drawn under this? And um, yeah, it's pretty hard as a journalist to, to, on one hand, be looking at all of the images of the people who were slaughtered in Israel, and then every day in the news seeing photos of another lifeless body of a child being dragged from the rubble in Gaza. And when that kind of argument was put to the people hosting the press conference, they just said, we are preparing to launch a ground invasion in Gaza. We're prepared. It will happen. There was no kind of leeway on that. And they they justify the constant bombardment of the city as uh, rooting out terrorists that are hiding in schools and hospitals and using civilians as human shields. So it's an incredibly complex situation. And I'm just one of those people trying to scratch the surface of it to report on it. Danny, could you take us to Tel Aviv, which I believe was the first place you did some reporting from when you went to Israel last week. You went to a special Shabbat dinner. This also brings in, I think, some of the stories of the people kidnapped by Hamas. Um, What did you see? So I think regarding the hostage situation, the families of those loved ones are having to be creative to keep the media attention on their situation. You know, as well as I do, that there is fatigue and you can write about something in the media and it can be on the front page one day and Five days later, that situation is still ongoing, but it's not getting as much coverage. And on Friday last week, I was invited to a kind of ceremonial Shabbat dinner where they laid out a really long trellis table. It just went on and on and on. You couldn't actually see the end of it for the 203 people who are or were missing at the time they laid the table. And it was really effective because mixed in among the wine glasses and the dinner plates were high chairs and milk bottles for babies because there are really young human beings that are being held hostage right now. And there were members of families of victims that are currently being held hostage and they gave readings and and it was really emotional. There was some music played. A rabbi gave some messages of hope to those gathered and people were hugging each other and crying. And then one woman broke ranks and there was a microphone and she picked it up and started shouting that the government isn't doing enough to bring our loved ones home. And we should all be campaigning outside the military headquarters in Tel Aviv demanding that they bring them back. This is getting ridiculous. It's been however many weeks since they were taken and we still don't know what's going on. And that message was supported by other people there. And it was very clear 
to me that there's a huge level of frustration regarding what the government is doing to save those hostages. And um, there has been a lot of talk as to whether Israel would consider delaying their invasion of Gaza to get the hostage out. In fact, is that what it's doing now? It's been saying it's been prepared to go in for some time now, and yet it hasn't. And is that because they are hoping to get a free passage for for those people that were taken hostage? But you do also wonder when you're hearing reports of doctors that have run out of antiseptic and are using washing up liquid to operate on people in Gaza. One guy that was taken hostage, and I spoke to his friend, someone that worships at the same synagogue as him, she was saying that he had half of his arm blown off and got taken hostage. What is what kind what is going to happen to this this person if they're missing half a limb and they're being held hostage and aren't able to have that operated on? And then actually when I went to the screening of the atrocities, I saw that man. He was recorded in some of the footage and you do see that half his arm is gone. And he's got a, a piece of a rag to tie up the end of the the limb. I can't even imagine what his health situation is. Then there were children, like really young children that are scared and elderly people with dementia that are being held hostage. I mean, it's just an impossible situation for literally everyone there right now. It was a real eye-opening experience into the pain and suffering that family members of these hostages are experiencing, but um, also displayed in quite a, a, a beautiful way doing it around this dinner table. It was really effective. Danny, you've spent over a week now in Israel. What What's your take on the sort of temperature on the ground, people's thoughts on the government? I mean, you mentioned those incredibly unhappy people, relatives and friends of the people taken into Gaza. What's the, how do you find the atmosphere out there? There is a lot of anger towards the Israeli government. And I went to a funeral this week of a young dual national, her mother and her sister. So all three of them were killed in the Barry kibbutz attack. I've covered funerals before, um, particularly in Ukraine, but there was something about this one where the, the majority of mourners gathered were teenagers. It was just so heartbreaking. And all these young girls were just hugging each other, sobbing. And, you know, one of their best friends had been killed, uh, along with that, her family that they've got to know really well. So it was uh, Noya Sharabi, Yahil Sharabi, and their mother, Leanne. And I spoke to Noya's best friend afterwards. And her dad came over to join the conversation because obviously, you know, it's a 16 year old. And um, the father said to me that people used to say to him, Aren't you terrified of living in Barry? It's on the Gaza border, it's not safe. You've literally got terrorists, the neighbours. Why would you live there and not in in a city where you're safer? And he said, you know, we had Iron Dome to fight off the missiles. We had this huge fence that was patrolled by the military. And we also had the government insisting that we were safe. So why wouldn't we believe it? And he said, now I feel like we were just tricked. We were conned into thinking that we could have ever been safe here. And I blame the, the government for that. And his sentiment is something I've heard from numerous people and that they really feel like another man described it as living under a blanket. Like he thought that there were solid structures in place to protect them. And actually the Iron Dome, by the way, is constantly referenced as as the main 
piece of equipment that that enables them a safe life or had and that now they feel like they thought they were living behind a wall but actually it was just a curtain and the government is always who they blame and no one I've spoken to as a fan of Netanyahu I haven't met a single person that has had something positive to say about the government to be quite honest people have also been critical of the military and having been lulled into a a false sense of security that it didn't matter that it was a a holiday when they struck that they should have been aware of how precarious the situation was and maintained the right level of security the whole time and they hadn't danny thank you so much for your time and do stay safe thank you As Israel masses its troops on the border of Gaza for a potential ground offensive, much thought has been given to lessons both sides may have taken from the ongoing war in Ukraine. On our sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes spoke about some of the ways the IDF are thinking about protecting their tank army from Hamas. Here's Joe Barnes. Any time a tank is destroyed, whether it be, say, for instance, the Challenger 2 that was blown up by Russian forces or various... Russian tanks are blown up, they're lauded as big moments. And that is no different to the Makurva main battle tank of Israel when eventually this sort of expected ground operation is launched into Gaza. So one of the things we've seen happen is these so-called coping cages or cope cages. They're the metal protections over the turret of the uh, tank, which stops ammunition, say whether it be grenades or mortar bombs being dropped from drones. So they've they've appeared on Israeli tanks. And then one thing, and this is a a slight nod to the economist who did an interview with the commander of the Israeli Defense Forces Armored Corps, and so Brigadier General Hisham Ibrahim, he said, we saw how the Russians fought in Ukraine and the mistakes they made they fought in single core fashion instead of using combined arms tactics. So basically, what this guy's saying is we saw Russia basically operating tanks on their own and they were being taken out by Ukrainians quite easily using various Western donated anti-tank missiles, whether they be the Javelin or the Enlor. So that is fascinating. So basically, the Israelis aren't going to descend tanks into sort of the highly urban populated areas of Gaza because they would be sitting ducks. They would likely be used in safer positions. So the Makavas would be used in a rear position, so set back, and be used as essentially long-range precision fires. And that's exactly how the Ukrainians have used their 14 Challenger 2 tanks. They've used them more as deep fire weapons, taking advantage of their two-kilometre range, rather than using them in built-up areas where they could easily be caught out. And then just some other sorts of language, we've come to learn that $500 drones and $500 grenades can take out multi-million dollar machines or tanks. So it's all little bits like that, that Israel has been carefully watching what Ukraine and Russia have been doing to ensure that when they eventually go up to fight Hamas on the ground, that they are going to be prepared for every situation. Because by now, we surely know Hamas uh, have also been watching that conflict and will be trying to replicate as much of Ukraine's great successes in destroying Russian tanks as they can. Thank you, Joe, Natalia, Sophia and Danny. And thank you all for listening. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. 
To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.